0: Hello everyone, this is Open Book with Betty's Booklist, the show where your favorite authors are an open book and tell me all about their exciting new releases. Today, I'm joined by Paula McLean. Paula is a New York Times bestselling author and When the Stars Go Dark is her fourth novel. This book centers around missing persons cases and is a layered examination of trauma and detective work. It is a must read for true crime and literary suspense lovers. Ola, hello. It's so amazing to meet you. I'm so excited to talk because I have to say your book might be one of my like favorite detective crime stories I've ever read. I'm so happy we could come on. Oh,
1: that is so flattering. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a treat to be here.
0: Yeah. Could we start by you telling everyone a little bit about what When the Stars Go Dark is about?
1: Absolutely. So it's a departure for me. For a while, I've been writing um, historical fiction, but this was the first time I tried my hand at writing a suspense story. And so it is what I would call a slow burn, emotional suspense novel about a woman, a missing persons detective named Anna Hart, who after a tragedy strikes her personal life, flees to the place where she grew up, which is Mendocino, California. And she's trying to heal and she's trying to leave her work behind. But instead what happens is the moment she arrives, she learns that a local girl has vanished essentially into thin air and she becomes obsessed with finding her. And um, their stories connect in a really deep and profound and um, meaningful way.
0: Yeah, it was definitely a super like layered story. Like I, we kept unraveling more things, but what made you decide to write a book that is a departure from the historical fiction everyone like loves you for? Yeah, I don't
1: decide things. Um, I'm a really irrational person and I follow my emotions and um, my imagination. So one day I was just walking my dog here in Cleveland where I live and the character appeared to me and essentially just kind of started talking to me. And I know um, a lot of writers when they talk about how they have their ideas sound, you know, schizophrenic, but it feels like that sometimes. It feels like a visitation. I mean, there I am just, you know, minding my own business and this character appears. She was really clear to me from the beginning. Um, And the piece that kind of landed was that she would be a mother Right. I just knew that and that she would be a breastfeeding mother. I don't know why I had that detail in my mind and that she would become obsessed with this girl because of her own background. So I'm endlessly fascinated by memory in the past. I'm obsessed with my own past and I'm excavating it. Um I'm interested in depth psychology and why we do what we do, how we're driven toward our life's purpose and how sometimes we get in our own way, getting there. Right? I mean, to me, that's Anna, right? She can't control herself. She's drawn to the stories of these missing girls, almost like a siren song, right? Um, She's a conduit for other people's pain because of her background. And so in a way she is her past. She can't get over the things that have happened to her. She can't get over the things that she's seen and can never um, unsee. And all of these things both weigh her down and pitch her toward uh, everything, her future, right? The plot, other people. Um, in a really, to me, a really interesting way. I just got caught up in it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just got caught up in it and that's my favorite feeling of all as a writer. And when I was a kid, I know you were um, an early reader, a passionate reader in elementary school and that's where I started too. The idea of being swept away by a story, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that happens to writers, we're swept away by a story. And hopefully if I'm swept away sufficiently enough and can articulate it deeply enough, this thing that I'm feeling and exploring, then something kind of magical happens that you're invited to that kind of to that party at the same time.
0: Yeah, it becomes real for the reader too. I mean, your book definitely felt real. I think I don't always read a ton of like detective stories because sometimes they feel slightly more surface level than some books that i read but this one i didn't experience that at all it felt like we were there and like it was so vivid and hearing her backstory i feel like made it so much richer because like you could see why this was so painful and relatable to her
1: right well thank you i mean that was my intention and sometimes i'm frustrated with crime detective fiction too, because it's very plot driven and we're supposed to be flipping the pages super, super quickly. And so we can't as writers concentrate on the stuff that I like, which is um, description and backstory and inner life and all of that, the language, right? Nature, everything that inspires me as a writer. So I had to make a real, I had to make a decision, essentially. Like, Was I going to write a plot-driven, fast-moving, twisty sort of book, which is kind of what uh, is really hitting the marketplace, or was I going to write the story that spoke to me Mm -hmm. and take my chances just to write the book that was calling me, regardless of whether it um, works in the genre?
0: I mean, that all really makes sense to me. Sometimes I feel like a certain story really is calling to you, Did you take inspiration Mm -hmm. from real missing persons cases when you were writing this book? Or did they all just like come to you organically in your head? So because
1: Anna was like the main impetus, I didn't really know where I was putting her, except that I I spent time in Mendocino when I was in my 20s. So I kind of knew that that was the setting that I wanted to use, but I wasn't sure of the time period In early drafts. I set the book in 2016 because I thought I was writing a contemporary novel and I just kept getting so frustrated, you know, when you watch like CSI or something like pretty much everybody thinks that they can solve a crime using their laptop, right? So I wanted this to be a deeper kind of more psychological book where people had to talk to each other. And so one day I was about three fourths of the way through my first draft. I just like threw everything out and I thought, okay, I'm going to set the book in 1993, pre-cell phone, pre-DNA testing, Mm pre-internet. And the minute I did that, you know, the book is set in Northern California, I remembered that there was a string of, you know, real missing persons cases in the 1990s. And that was kind of all, right? And so I started doing my research and one day I was listening to a podcast where an FBI detective was interviewing another uh, retired FBI detective. And it just happened to be a detective named Eddie Fryer who was the lead detective in the Polyclos investigation. So you're too young, probably, to remember Polyclas, but she went in October of 1991, and or sorry, in October of 1993, and it was the most one of the most um, widely covered. Uh, missing persons cases in national history, but certainly it was the largest manhunt in California history. So thousands of people turned out to search for her. Winona Ryder made a public broadcast, borrowed Harrison Ford's airplane, you know, um, raised $2 million to help with the search. Like it was really publicized and instantly, you know, overnight, Polly Klaus was like America's child. And, mm-hmm. Um, Because I had set the book in 1993, like suddenly it occurred to me that Polly Claus and my character, Cameron Curtis, were contemporaries. Now that sounds weird to say, because one is fiction, and one is real life. And yet, I just had that feeling, right? Every once in a while, something strikes us really profoundly. And what struck me was, yes, I'm telling a story, but for these families, They couldn't escape this profound catastrophe at the center of their lives that they would never forget. They would never move on from. And I just thought to be respectful to that real story because people do disappear Mm -hmm. and people disappear who don't become America's child, whose cases aren't covered by national media. Um, and they can't get the attention they deserve, even from local authorities. And so I kind of wanted Anna, my main character, to plumb that really complicated place, right? right. Not yeah, every that's all very
0: contemporary, not, focusing right. on the people who are overlooked.
1: Overlooked, exactly. Um, not everyone gets on the milk carton, right? And why? You know, why are certain cases capture the public imagination right and other people don't so
0: yeah i really i liked that also because like then you can really play with it and you don't have to align exactly with polly's case like it gives you the room to make up the story that fits anna that's really clever
1: exactly to touch on the historical and then and then move on right Mm -hmm. because I'm telling a I'm telling a different story. And yet the way that I weave in the factual information to me makes this endeavor of Anna's even larger, right? It intensifies the urgency because what if they're connected? You know, what if this person, yeah. this player, um, will strike again? And you know, Anna is very interested in. You know, I think as a culture, we're obsessed with those of us who watch these CSI movies or, you know, crime detective um, shows or read that kind of fiction, we're obsessed with the criminal mind, right? We're obsessed with predators and what drives someone to that limit. But Anna um, is actually obsessed with victims and victimology. Like, what makes a person a victim? How does a victim and a predator cross paths? Like... Why does that happen? And she feels like if she can get to the bottom of that, then she can stop that thing from happening. She can protect um, victims. She can protect people who can't protect themselves.
0: Yeah, that was really interesting. And I felt like it was a really fresh take because like, I love stories where there's like a psychopathic character, villain or not. And like, I loved watching Mindhunter, which was about those two- Absolutely. Yeah, police officers that I think were like, kind of obliquely mentioned, like their findings. And this felt really new and fresh and like something that still isn't really focused on today. Again, like so contemporary, like something that would benefit everyone to think about. But I just wouldn't have even thought what Anna did, like, oh, what happened to this girl that made her send out that beacon to predators? You know, that was really interesting to me.
1: Thank you. The idea of it's it's a, a theme in the book that Anna believes that certain people who have been wounded in the past, um, who have had great loss or displacement, the victim that she becomes obsessed with um, was adopted and had a really traumatic childhood and Anna herself had a traumatic childhood. So that's the thing that links them together. And she believes that this young woman actually inadvertently, totally subconsciously kind of drew predator toward her, um, kind of through this woundedness, Mm -hmm. right? And in the book, it's called a bat signal, right? Yeah, that. And Anna uh, tells her partner will, um, that, you know, everyone comes into the world with a bright light. And then when trauma happens, it's almost like tar over that light. And then when the light shines through, it creates a bat signal. And that predators can sense that. Right. It's a very creepy idea. Yeah. Um, It's scary. And and yet, it's scary. And a therapist actually said that to me. And it's really a, you know, it's just very important to um, state super clearly that a victim is never a victim because of something they did. Mm -hmm. But right, it's not your fault that you're targeted this bat signal is all, it's hidden, it's this hidden quality of, um, I don't know what you're going to say, woundedness in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Fragility, a kind of helplessness or something, right? And if you think about it, um, for instance, a, a wolf who's going after gazelles or deer, right, is going to target the weakest link. And does that gazelle who's wounded kind of know that it is a weak link, right? No, it's just living its life. So um, it's a it's a really interesting idea. And that idea actually was pointed out to me about me. Right? Mm -hmm. Because I grew up in foster care, I had a lot of loss and abandonment and rejection and, and it created this bad signal, I guess. And what he was trying to say, and again, not to make me feel any shame about my past, but to say, it's important to know that this is true, that you are emitting this subconscious, you know, kind of um, signal. And that if you're not aware of it, you're going to keep doing it maybe, but to be aware of it, to try to heal yourself And ultimately, this is a book, Elizabeth, about healing. I mean, for it to be incredibly hopeful, right, that we can heal our wounds and we can help each other heal by making these deep
0: connections. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Anna's story was hopeful because I won't reveal the spoiler of like what happened in her life, but Once we found that out towards the end, after seeing how far she's come, before we even know what happened, I think finding that out so late was really powerful because we were already like, she's come so far, but once we knew what she was coming from, it felt even more weighty.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I really was hoping that our sympathy for Anna would grow over time as we learned more and more of her story. And I believe that's what happens between us, right? Between all humans, right? We have more and more compassion for each other the more we know what we're carrying, right?
0: Yeah. They say, I was just listening to a podcast that said something like, after a certain number of hours, like you consider yourself close to someone, but when you're young, when you're a kid or in college, it's way less. It's like 50 hours. And the older you get, the more hours you need before you can feel that like, so compassion that they're a friend it was like 93 hours versus 40 or 50 when you're young um yeah, so like you need to Do you think that's because we're more guarded i think it's a mix of that and just like situational like when you're young you're in the same place as basically all the people you're getting close with but then when you meet people when you're older like you're doing different things. You're in different places in life. You have way less common factors. But you also, like, spending 93 hours with someone is a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot harder as an adult. I person. mean, that, could take, that,
1: could, that take could take years. Yeah. And think about long-distance relationships. Let's just throw that in there, right? Like, yeah. how much you'd really need to, to, to um, commit to, like, doing the time until we actually get to know somebody. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, sometimes sharing, I think, can probably bring you there closer. But that's the great thing about reading, too. Like, you get to go right inside their head and, like, hear their truth. You know, you can skip some of those hours getting close to someone in a book. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. That's I'm going to search that out. That sounds like a really interesting – It was on Call Her Daddy. It was an interview with a psychologist, I want to say, on Call Her Daddy podcast recently –
1: Okay. I'll check it out.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Now I have a question about your writing process. You mentioned that like three fourths of the way through you went and changed the period. What did making Mm -hmm. such a drastic change look like for you? Did it look like going back and like rewriting or just going through and changing elements that you needed to?
1: So I'm constantly rewriting and I find revision Oh, I don't know. I take a great reassurance that a draft is just a draft and you can always pull it out and, and, you know, essentially make it richer and deeper and, and, you know, more powerful. We focus too much, I think, on anything we put down for the first time. And I think it's a really great practice for me to know that everything is a draft, like everything is changeable. And because I'm discovering, it's a process of discovery. I, I never, I didn't know when I set out to write this book, what the ending was going to be. I actually had no idea. Yeah. Um, so it's not a rational or incredibly um, efficient way to write a book or, or to live for that matter, but it is, it, it's truer for me because I think, If we don't open to possibility as artists, then we can never really be surprised. And if we're not surprised, then our readers certainly aren't really going to be surprised. Right? Yeah. I don't know. It's my favorite thing, right? Surrendering to the story as if it has its own agenda. Right? I mean, here, this character visited me like a... You know, like a whatever, it was like a spirit. And I just needed to follow that character through a journey and come out on the other side.
0: I think that, I mean, that's how it happens for me too when I'm writing. I've, I mean, I am working on like my first book and. I, feel, I didn't know anything that would happen, really. When I started it, I just knew the main two characters and went from there, but then changed so much along the way. But I find revision a little intimidating, So, but it's good to hear that you have come to like it. Tell so me why that.
1: exactly. Like, what's intimidating about it? Like, you're afraid of losing
0: something? You're afraid
1: of making a mistake?
0: Well, I'm not afraid of losing something because I think I actually love cutting stuff out. I worked, like I said, in video production. And when you're editing a video, I might have shot eight hours of footage one day and we'll make a 10 second video. So you get really used to throwing stuff out. I guess it's like, it feels like it's never done. Like I know that the more I work, Mm -hmm. the more it'll keep getting better. So it's like, at what point am I even done?
1: Yeah, so that bit, I would say definitely I agree with. It becomes a little overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I have a friend who I met when our kids were little. I have a 15 and 17-year-old now, and she was working on a novel that she had just started. And guess what? She's still working on that novel. And I've written four or five or something like that. Not because I'm better, or it's just that she can't let it go. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like she's still working on it. She's still, and by that time, she's probably written five books within that book, Mm -hmm. right? Because the more it changes, right? You have to go all the way through and rework it so that it holds together. I mean, I got my start as a poet right? So if you change a line and it elevates the poem, you know, you have to make sure that the whole poem kind of gels and is at that same level. Well, that's one thing for a 14-line poem and another thing for for a a novel. novel Oh, I know.
0: I changed the ending of my novel and I had to go all the way back because I was like, now like some things don't even make sense anymore, but I feel good about the ending. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. And so I would just say, just have a little faith in the process, right? Mm -hmm. The process is going to take you to a place that you didn't know you were going. And once you get there, it changes your view of the beginning. And so you have to go back and make sure that it all lines up. But at a certain place, you have to let that novel go, because it needs to live, right? And so you can write something else. And keep growing as an artist. Yeah. I'm excited
0: for you, lady. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank
1: you. I'm excited, too.
0: Now, how did you make the jump from poetry to fiction?
1: Um, It came pretty organically. I was at the University of Michigan in the 1990s, um, getting my degree In poetry, I was also the divorced single parent of a two-year-old living on student loans, um, doing this really crazy thing, right? What was I gonna do with a degree in poetry? But I'd just gotten a divorce. I'd married young. I didn't really know what to do with my life. I thought it can't get any worse, right? I'm gonna do this thing for me and to really try my hand at being a writer. And I couldn't lose any more than I had already lost. So, But when I was there and studying and, you know, making friends with other writers and in a a writing workshop, when I told my story to anybody just by chance at a keg party, like anywhere at a bar, like in class that I had grown up in foster care and that I had had like seven different mothers. And um, my dad was a heroin addict, you know, who was in and out of prison. Like this is made for TV movie kind of stuff. Anytime I would tell my story, invariably, that person would say, you should write a memoir. And I thought, I can't do that. Like, how can I do that? I'm a poet. Like, I don't write in sentences. I." Um, but the idea stuck. And I thought, okay, so I wrote a book of poetry. And then the next book was a memoir about growing up in foster care. And it was a challenge for me. I mean, that first book really taught me how to write a book, right? How to structure it, how to um, Descend into character, even if that character is me, how to write a scene, how to work with dialogue, how to move back and forth between summer, summary and scene, you know, all of those things, right? Um, and it was so challenging. I think there is a part of me, and I don't know if you feel this way, there's a part of me that likes being over my head being like, Oh, yeah, I
0: love being over my head.
1: (laughs) Exactly, Exactly. like (laughs) slightly outmatched by the goal that I've set for myself. But that challenge to me is enlivening, and kind of emboldening. Maybe I've always been an underdog. I like it when the world says I can't do something, or that I um, am kidding myself. Because it gives me that kind of like rise up, like lion's voice, like, oh, yeah, you think I can't do this? Watch me.
0: Well, I think that's a good line to end on, actually. Thank you so much for coming on Open Book and telling everyone all about your book. And everyone go buy it. Buy it in hardback. Buy it on Kindle. Buy it in paperback. Read it. Get it on (laughs) Libby. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Elizabeth. It's really been such a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you all for watching. You can listen to an extended cut on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe for more bookish content.